This is The Legal Impact, the weekly show presented by the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law. Now accepting applications for JD and graduate programs, learn more and apply at law.unh.edu. Opinions discussed are solely the opinion of the faculty or host and do not constitute legal advice or necessarily represent the official views of the University of New Hampshire and UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. I'm your host, AJ Kirstead, and today I'm joined by Professor John Graby, who's also the director of the Warren B. Rudman Center for Justice Leadership and Public Service. And we have had a very busy week with webinars covering different cases. Oh, my God. And <laughs> you've been out straight. We're recording this on Tuesday, July 5th. This might release a week after we're recording, right. depending on the schedule of everything else we have going on. But we've talked about Dobbs. We, we've talked about uh, the West Virginia EPA case. We have Bremerton in, in, on the sites for the one we're going to be doing tomorrow. And this must be a little extreme for you to... <laughs> it's like, Well, it's definitely like drinking from a fire hose. And today specifically, we're going to talk a bit about basically, I'm going to title this like church and states in the eyes of the Supreme Court. So, and if the 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 more conservative justices we now have the court have a very different, we've talked about originalism, textualism, but there's also the angle of religion when it comes to how they interpret the Constitution cases that come in front of them. If you had to give like a high level, what would you say the shift is between the previous courts of a decade ago versus now when it comes to it? I would say if it just, I would say that of the two religion clauses in the First Amendment, the free exercise clause and the establishment clause, um, the court is currently embarked uh, on a program to expand the reach of the free exercise clause. Um, and part of that is having the concomitant effect of narrowing the anti-establishment principle um, as uh, a principle uh, held by individuals in this society, the principle of, of, of being free from um, having an establishment of religion foisted upon you. And there, this obviously gets very complex very quickly depending on how you handle certain cases. Like the big one that really stood out to me was Carson v. Macon coming out of uh, Maine. What was the basis of that case and how does it feed into this? Yeah, that's a case. And that, that case ties into a couple of cases that have been decided over the last couple of years as well. Um, so some areas of Maine are, are sparsely populated and rural and there aren't enough students in certain districts to warrant the creation of a school. Um, and in those districts, um, Maine makes available the money that would be spent on public education for those students to use uh, either uh, to, they, I mean, there's different things that can be done, but among the things that can be done with that money is uh, use for private school tuition. The question in the case was whether students could use the funds made available through the program uh, at religious schools, um, religious schools that would be providing religious instruction to the schools. Um, and by a six to three vote, the court said that it would, it, Maine had said no. Maine had a policy uh, of allowing these dollars only to be used um, at non-sectarian private schools. And the Supreme Court in a six to three vote said that that violated the free exercise rights. Uh, of people who wanted to use that money um, at, uh, at at religious schools. This seems like on the face of it, as someone who's not a constitutional expert, that it's, it's discriminatory by the state of Maine to not allow religious schools. I mean, you, you, there's not very many options when you're talking about it, when you're talking big picture. There's public schools, there's private schools that aren't religious focused, and there's private schools that are religious focused. So how did they justify that they're not going to be 
paying tuition for these these schools. Good. Yeah, it definitely was discriminatory. You know, and the question is always in these cases not whether discrimination is taking place, but whether the discrimination that's taking place uh, is grounded in permissible uh, policy or or law. Um, Maine took the position that subsidizing religious instruction is what would happen if these dollars, these public dollars, were used to allow students uh, to attend private schools. I'm I'm sorry, sectarian schools, because these schools uh, engage in religious instruction. And Maine said, um, not as a value judgment, but because of the Establishment Clause, that it saw uh, a need to abide by Establishment Clause principles and to ensure that public funds not be used to support directly religious instruction. Um, and the Supreme Court said, um, no, that discrimination, that, you know, that that was based on too broad of an understanding of the Establishment Clause and that um, discrimination against uh, religious persons uh, triggers what we call strict scrutiny, uh, meaning there has to be a compelling interest uh, to do it. And the way in which you do it has to be narrowly tailored. There, it has to be, um, you know, as, as, as specifically tailored as possible. And that, you know, Maine's policy did not satisfy this test. Yeah, it's, Maine wasn't requiring the students to go to a religious school. Like, that seems to be the big, the big difference with this. Like, were you surprised by this decision? To me, even with uh, maybe not as left-leaning justices, but just center-of-the-road judge, judges, I would imagine, would interpret it this way. Well, I mean, I, no, I wasn't surprised. Mm-hmm. I think it's been clear the, the path that the court has been on for a few years. You know, in the last couple of years, a couple of years ago, it decided a case called Trinity Lutheran, mm-hmm. uh, where this, the state of Missouri made public funds available uh, to repave playgrounds with recycled tires, but didn't allow um, religious institutions to partake in the program. That was held to be discriminatory under the Free Exercise Clause. Then there was a case called Espinoza out of Montana involving the constitutionality of a, uh, a state constitutional amendment that says no public funds in Montana should be spent at sectarian schools. Uh, again, uh, that was held to be unconstitutional. Um, so it had been already established that discrimination against religious organizations uh, violates the free exercise clause, that the, that the establishment clause does not permit uh, 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 a, a state entity from saying you, you know, does not permit the state entity to say you can't spend this at a, you know, at a religious institution. This case went one step further because uh, in those cases, there weren't facts to show that, that public tax dollars would be used to, to subsidize religious instruction directly. That was an argument made in this case that that was different, but the majority here rejected that argument. And I, I, this really brings to mind uh, recent discussions around education freedom credits in New Hampshire. And this basically, to me, solidifies the, the ability of states to continue to offer these sorts of services, far-reaching um, uh, case law now, which would affect other things like this, I'm assuming. That's right. I mean, I think that the Establishment Clause is really not nearly the the um, the constitutional right that it had been treated uh, as being for decades. I mean, the Establishment Clause says that the state shall not establish a religion, so it shouldn't prefer religion over non-religious views, nor should it allow for a preference of one religion over another. That notion, though, had really translated into the idea that there needs to be a wall of separation between certain church and state. Um, But I think this Supreme Court has made very clear that that wall is not much of a wall uh, at all anymore. And in fact, we know that a couple of members of this Supreme Court 
have a very different view of the Establishment Clause from the one that had been adopted in previous decades. Clarence Thomas has written to say that the only thing the Establishment Clause was intended to do was to prevent Congress from imposing an establishment on the states. It was to free the states from a federal establishment of a particular religion. Now, if that view is adopted by a majority of the court, the Establishment Clause is going to do very, very little work, if any work, in our constitutional order. Can you speak to the other side of that a little bit? The other side, the free exercise side? Yeah, so so the I'm assuming the, the just judges on the left side of the aisle traditionally um, would disagree with that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that um, you, you see in the dissent, um, the um, uh, uh, Justice Breyer wrote a dissent in the case decrying the diminishment of the wall of separation. Um, he has taken the position really throughout his career that the religion clauses, which point in you know somewhat conflicting directions, that they be interpreted so as to avoid religious strife. Okay, so he said, uh, so his argument was that this, you know, by by effectively forcing taxpayers to subsidize religious instruction, that that there are going to be a lot of people who are unhappy with that, and that increases religious strife. And that he called for a jurisprudence of the First Amendment religion clauses with play in the joints where reasonable accommodations could be made on the one hand for religious persons who want the same access to public benefits that everybody else has, but also on the other hand, to take account of the fact that many people feel very, very strongly that church and state should be kept separate in our constitutional order. Now, this is gonna make many people on the left roll their eyes because it's a textualist originalist <laughs> a breakdown of yeah, it. That's the but way to how, do it these but days. But how did the, the founding fathers review this? I mean, were they more on the side of where the conservative justices lie? Well, it, it, you it know, and I, again, I'm not a First Amendment historian, right. but um, I know that the history of the First Amendment and in particular the religion clauses and what they meant is highly contested. There is no consensus view on what was intended by these clauses and what various members of the founding generation inst- uh, understood them to promise and prohibit. Hence, maybe that's a perfect transition to Dobbs, which is very much along those same lines. Yeah, I mean, on its face, Dobbs has nothing to do with religion, right? But um, I think realists, the realists among us, know that the anti-abortion movement um, is heavily fueled, at the very least, uh, by religious belief in, in this country, and in particular, um, Dobbs, uh, in overturning Roe versus Wade, held that states may uh, treat uh, unborn human life uh, as being human life, really from the moment of conception. Um, they, they didn't quite go quite so far as to say as a constitutional matter that an unborn, uh, uh, that a developing fetus is a human life right from the moment of conception, but they opened the door to the states to do it. And a lot of states uh, are clearly gonna legislate with that idea in mind. Um, so again, I think, you know, yes, Dobbs is, is about the 14th Amendment, and in, in particular, it's about, uh, you know, the right uh, to abortion, um, unenumerated rights, uh, substantive due process, all the stuff that we've talked about in connection with Dobbs. You know, none of that is directly anchored in the First Amendment's free exercise clause. But the effect of all of these decisions um, the decisions that I made reference to before and Dobbs is, is to empower religious people in the political process 
at the local level. Um, religious majorities are going to have their way in the political process in states where they constitute a democratic majority, uh, both with respect uh, to the issues being raised in these free exercise cases and also in adjacent disputes, for example, abortion rights. Yeah, it's the, this might be a cynical view of Congress's inability to get anything done, but I mean, ultimately, is the court saying Congress will make up their minds? The, obviously, the population is very divided. It, when you're looking at state to state, it's like it's almost 50-50 when you look at the the states with, from a population perspective how they're split on the matter. Yeah, I mean, it's it's going to devolve down to the state level. Um, and then, I mean, it, and then the door opens to a whole bunch of new issues and conflicts because, um, you know, some states are not going to be content to simply outlaw abortion within their states. They're going to seek to try to legislate in a way to prevent people in their states from leaving the state and going to states where abortion is, is legal uh, in order to have an abortion and then returning to the state. And that raises all sorts of d- difficult issues. And it's really going to bring the states into conflict with one another, I'm, I'm afraid. Let's move over to uh, Kennedy v. Bremerton School District, and how how do you view the this is a more blatant <laughs> type of relig- religious subject in there, closer to the main lawsuit? Uh, but discuss that briefly. Yeah, I mean, this is the this is the football coach who would would say a prayer on the fifty yard line after after games. Um, one of the interesting things about this opinion is there's a strong disagreement about the underlying facts. Um, the majority characterized what he was doing as a as a a private uh, a quiet private prayer on the 50-yard line. Um, the dissenting justices depicted and inclu- actually included photographs of uh, him praying with students in a dissent. That was a new one for me in saying that this was no private, uh, quiet prayer on the 50-yard line. Uh, this was a coach who was making very clear what he was going to be doing. Um, and the argument was uh, from the dissent was that, especially at with school-aged children involved, um, that there was an element of coercion. You know, you want to you want to please your coach, right? And so uh, that that um, not only were uh, students from the coaches team praying, but but um, opposing coaches and students also were praying. Once again, though, we have uh, and this this case arises in the context of this this line of jurisprudence needing to balance on the one hand the pre, the free exercise guarantee. And on the other hand, uh, the anti-establishment principle. And once again, um, in disciplining this coach, um, the, uh, the, the defendant, the state, was found uh, to have violated free exercise rights and to have been acting on too broad of an understanding of the anti-establishment principle. There's also a free speech claim aspect to this case as well. Um, that the majority, the majority did go on to hold that it also there was also a violation of his of his free speech rights. So not so two different First Amendment violations uh, were found by the majority in this case. And I'd mention the free speech issue because the court has has teed up on its docket a case next year, which is going to raise the free speech rights of religious persons once again. You may recall the Masterpiece Cake Shop case from a few years ago. Um, the court really punted on that case. Yes, they did. Um, it sent it back down for more fact-finding. Um, well, we have a case, uh, again, coming from Colorado, like that case did, um, of a web designer who, who um, wants to move into designing uh, websites for weddings, um, but whose uh, religious beliefs, uh, she says, uh, preclude her from doing that uh, on behalf of same-sex couples who are going to be getting married. Colorado law 
Anti-discrimination law requires that businesses not discriminate on account of sexual orientation. And so um, the argument is that, you know, that she's obliged under Colorado law uh, to, to not discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation among customers. Uh, she's claiming, she claimed that she has free speech rights and free exercise rights that allow her to do it. Now, the court didn't take the free exercise question it just took the free speech question. They said question. bad process originally with the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, right? That's right. They said, yeah, yeah. They said there was there was evidence in the record of animus against those with religious belief, and so they sent it down to be done over again um, by more neutral adjudicators. Uh, this case tees up the question in the free speech context: Does it, you know is this compelled speech? You know, to be forced to create a website. Um, on behalf of a couple whose union you think is sinful in some way. Um, first of all, does that implicate First Amendment interests? And if so, um, does it satisfy the test uh, for that, that's laid out for compelled speech that goes against one's conscience? I mean, I think I have very little doubt about how the case is going to turn out. The interesting question still does remain to what extent can religious people in their speech and more generally in their conduct exempt themselves from anti-discrimination laws uh, on the basis of their religious views. That is still an issue that the court has not definitively settled, but I think it's pretty clear that the trajectory is in favor of finding uh, that, that you know, the state doesn't have a sufficient interest in enforcing non-discrimination law uh, so as to impose upon religious freedom in this way. This is probably opening another 20-minute podcast can of worms to ask this, but um, it, it seems to me like the religious, uh, the people, the judges that are coming across with religious backgrounds that are conservative are entirely very small government, very libertarian-leaning is the way it seems to, to go politically with all this. Like, like how, how do these connect? Like, it's, is it very much the f freedom of speech being more important, but then also we're seeing with West Virginia VAPA where they're saying it's very, no, this government agency is very limited in what they should be allowed to do based off of what Congress gave them authority to have. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, there's, there's different ways you could characterize right. this and draw connections across these cases, but I th the, the one that leaps out to me is that there is going to be more and more leeway at the state and local level for democratic majorities, including religious democratic majorities, to both have their way in the political process um, and to be free from regulations that collide with their sincerely held religious beliefs. Mm -hmm. um, at the federal level, yes, there still will be rights, and the Second Amendment decision makes clear uh, that there are going to be constraints placed on localities and states that may want to regulate more with respect to rights that are clearly anchored in the text of the Constitution, or so the Supreme Court tells us with respect to the Second Amendment rights, although that's a contested point too. <laughs> um, but um, I think we are, he we are right now being led by a court that is perfectly okay with devolving power that is presently held at the federal level, and in particular at the administrative level, uh, in the administrative agencies at the federal level, um, devolving that power back down towards the states and towards local governments. What's next? What do you think? Is it just going to be a, f a very interesting couple of years ahead with cases? Well, we already have the case that I just mentioned on the docket for next year, um, and that could yield a ruling about the intersection between, again, re religious faith and anti-discrimination law. 
Uh, we have a case on the docket about that questions the lawfulness of affirmative action. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's a case on the, that was just added to the docket about the so-called uh, independent state legislature doctrine uh, that could fundamentally rewrite the way in which federal elections uh, are handled and administered at the state level. Um, these are, all have the capacity, the, the potential to be true blockbusters. Um, and you know, the, I, I think the way in which they are likely to be decided uh, will continue to disrupt um, American society and American constitutional understandings. Professor John Graby, director of the Warren B. Rudman Center for Justice, Leadership, and Public Service. Learn more about the center at law.unh.edu slash Rudman. Thanks for listening to The Legal Impact, presented by UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. To help spread word about the show, please be sure to subscribe and comment on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Get the back episodes of the show and podcast links at law.unh.edu slash podcast.